by nature are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. So this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just, we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Leah Tamaglu. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SER, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. On the show today... So in a way, you can kind of imagine like this big thunderstorm developing above you, and all of a sudden it just blowing down and kicking everything on the ground up into the air. So it's like a giant vacuum cleaner in reverse, just blowing everything apart. What is thunderstorm asthma, and how is it getting worse with climate change? And the future of seafood. What is aquaculture, and how will it work moving forward? But up first... There's some great footage out there that shows you in infrared what the bees see, and then when you look at flowers, you see them in a whole new light. This is Costa Georgiadis. And you might know Costa from Gardening Australia on ABC or recognise him because of his big bushy beard. Costa is a landscape architect by trade, but by passion, he loves all things plants and all things bees. And right now, he's talking about what happens when a bee pollinates a flower. You can understand why they don't miss, because this is like one infrared dance party and you've just opened the door and there's like the full tilt light show and just gone I'm in there right and they go into the flower and just like they are bouncing off the walls they're going for the party the after party and the and the next day you know they're still going bouncing around off the walls they get covered and then they fly off Bees do an incredible, incredible amount of work that for us as humans, even when I say to people, oh, you know, you haven't had enough bees in your garden, go and pollinate with a brush your passion fruits or your pumpkins. I mean, it takes time, <laughs> you know, you, and yeah. you've got to go there and you've got to get the pollen off and rub it in the right places. Uh, one. <laughs> Two, <laughs> three. And how do you pollinate them yourselves? What do you use? What do you? Oh, you on can there? get a little brush, and then basically you just have to get the pollen from one point and rub it on the other point of the, right. the plant and mix it around. But that's the thing that bees do. I mean, they do it. You know, they, they just have a sign on there: "Will work for <laughs> pollen and nectar." You know, that's their gig. Whereas for us to do it, we've got to put a lot of time in, and like, there's no way that it can be done on huge orchards and and huge farms, and that's where you actually see bees get transported to to pollinate crops, you, you know, big, big orchards. You know, they'll go there and do nut farms and, and fruit farms. They'll, they'll put them out there and they'll go and do the job for us. And you, and you say transported as in people are physically driving out these bees out there? Yeah, yeah. They, they take the boxes. Really? They put them on trucks. Uh, there's, there's bees that just move around with the seasons and they're hired, they're, like for the farmers it's basically dollars and cents because if they get more flowers pollinated, that's extra fruit on that tree and, and that's extra dollars. 
As well as being extra dollars for the farmers, the fact that bees are hugely responsible in pollinating crops is a big deal for all of us. Tomatoes, apples, pears, potatoes, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, watermelon, cucumber, you literally name anything you can find in the grocer, and there's a good chance that it's had a meet and greet with a pollinating bee at some point. But recently, things haven't been looking good for bee populations. Pesticide use, changes in climate conditions, and destruction of habitats are just some of the strains affecting bee populations around the globe. In January this year, the United States listed its first ever endangered bee species, the rusty-patched bumblebee. Now, the stresses I've just mentioned are posing some serious threats, but there's something else that's really throwing some bees into a tailspin, and it's a little mite called a varroa mite. Varroa mite is a mite that gets into the beehive and basically... They eat the larvae and or they lay their eggs in there, which then eat the larvae of the about-to-hatch bees and wipes out the colony, and they call it colony collapse disorder. It's not so much the mite that kills the bees, but it acts as a vector of a large number of honeybee viruses. This is Madeline Beekman, professor in behavioural ecology from the University of Sydney. Madeline says it's the honeybee that's being worst affected by the transmission of certain viruses. And it's one of those viruses in particular, and it's called deformed wing virus, because the bees that emerge with a heavy infection of deformed wing virus have deformed wings. And it's becoming more and more clear that for some reason, the presence of this mite selects for highly virulent strains of, of that particular virus, the deformed wing virus. So that is basically killing bees across the globe. Varroa mites aren't necessarily a new mite. In fact, in certain places around the world, they've lived alongside bee populations. But the reason they're attacking certain honeybees now more so than before, well, one reason is because of beekeepers. It's not an, a new mite. It originates from a close relative of the honeybee, and that's Apis arana, the Asian hive bee. Um, the Asian hivebee and the Western hivebee are normally separated. But beekeepers do all these weird things. They like moving their hives around because they, they follow honey flows, etc. And also in the 80s, there was this misconceived idea that we could help people in Southeast Asia increase their honey production if they would just have a proper bee, in other words, the Western honeybee. So a lot of extension workers introduced the uh, European honeybee or the Western honeybee into Southeast Asia and encourage people to keep the western honeybee. And then it turned out that this mite heavily lives on Apis arana, the Asian honeybee, where it does no harm, that jumped onto the western honeybee. And because the bee and the mite haven't co-evolved for a long time, basically mismatched. So the, the parasite has become a serious issue because it increases in numbers really quickly in the uh, European or the western honeybee colonies. Fortunately enough for our bees, the varroa mite is not found here in Australia. So they've remained relatively unscathed from all the other dangers that bees in other countries are facing. But that could soon change. Back to Costa. Australian bees have been so pristine 
up until now that many bees get sent over to the US to help with pollinating. But unfortunately, I, I wouldn't want to be one of those bees because your chances of returning because of the problems over there probably a bit slim. Right, yeah. so the ones that they're taking to the US, are they native bees? Like they're no, no, Australian they're, they're, native they're honeybees. What's the difference? Because I, I feel like there are a number of different types of yeah. bees, but I can't differentiate them. No, you're right on. So your classic honeybee, you, you go down to the markets or to the shop and you buy some honey. Most of that has been created by the European honeybee. They're colony bees. They produce a large amount of honey. The Australian native bee, there's many of them. Lots and lots of them. There's upward of, I'll just say, 1,500 different Australian native bees. Wow. And most of them are loners. They're just individuals that go out and live and they don't congregate in a colony. But there is one variety that does. And that variety is a variety that we can put into community gardens because the one thing with the Australian native bees is that they don't sting. Putting native bees into community gardens is exactly what Costa is doing. Costa is championing the Bee B&B Hotel Initiative, which has already seen 40 bee hotels installed into schools, which essentially are just that, little hotels or homes for native bees to come and live in. And like he said, the natives don't sting. But like other bee species, the honeybee and bumblebee, native bees still pollinate, so they're an important population to keep alive. If we want bees, we need a food source. Now, the food source is flowers. And I said to them, well, when do we get flowers? And actually, the kids were pretty good. They mixed it up a bit. But a lot of times when I ask adults, they go, oh, you get flowers in spring. I go, yeah, but then after that, the bees need food. You don't just eat in spring. So what getting involved with the native bees and developing bug hotels, what doing that does is actually get you thinking about what have I got flowering in my garden now and then what about from April till June and then what's going to be flowering in the midst of winter and so it gives you a really nice opportunity to sit back and say well if I want these bees I've got to provide for them I said this to the kids in the class today I said now this reminds me of a saying and I said repeat this after me Build it and they will come when we were talking about the bug hotel. And they said, build it and they will come. <laughs> and I thought, that's it. Plant it and they will, they will be there. And, you know, here you have just here at the TAFE on the middle of Harris Street, busy built environment, asphalt paved area with concrete steps. There was nothing there. And now this little corner has become a garden and the birds are coming in there, the bees, the native bees, all these different elements of the microbiology so that, you know, we're, we're rebuilding an ecosystem. Costa Georgiatis ending that story. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. So in November last year, a thunderstorm hit Victoria that resulted in 8,500 people seeking hospital treatment and 10 fatalities in the week after the storm hit. This wasn't due to lightning, wasn't due to heavy rain or flooding. It was all because of pollen. Last week, a group of medical researchers and scientists met in Victoria at the Thunderstorm Asthma Symposium to look at what happened last November. How can we deal with these events? And more generally, what is thunderstorm asthma? 
Alfredo Huete is a distinguished professor from the Climate Change Cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney, and attended last week's symposium. It's sort of like you have the right kind of meteorological conditions that create a thunderstorm. Again, no big deal because we're used to having thunderstorms. But in this particular case, the thunderstorm converges upon a populated area in such a way that it actually creates these very strong downdrafts, gusts of wind. So in a way, you can kind of imagine like this big thunderstorm developing above you and all of a sudden it just blowing down and kicking everything on the ground up into the air. So it's like a giant vacuum cleaner in reverse, just blowing everything apart. And then these particles, including pollen grains, are moving up into the atmosphere where they start getting hydrated because of the moist air that's creating the thunderstorm. And as they hydrate with water surrounding the pollen grains, one theory or strong theory is that it explodes. So the thunderstorm pollen becomes these pollen-disrupted, ruptured grains of pollen. And that fine, ruptured grains of pollen can penetrate, come back down, and blanket the city. And basically, people breathe that, and it's so fine that it just instantly goes deep into your lungs. And instantaneous, which is why, as the thunderstorm moved from, in Melbourne last year, November, from Geelong to Melbourne, there's an exact trace of ambulance phone calls, hospital phone calls, admissions, ambulance emergency services. So there's even a timeline of those actions, emergency actions being taken as the thunderstorm moved from west toward the eastern part of Melbourne there. Wow. And just how might, because you hear climate change is uh, resulting in more frequent climate events, whether that be flooding, whether that be fires, whether that be storm conditions, how might something like climate change accentuate what is happening in the asthma thunderstorm? Right. So I guess thunderstorm asthma is, in in essence, it's really a a very strong thunderstorm event, which the climate change is predicted to create stronger storms. So it is something worth to look at and consider that maybe this the thunderstorm activity may become more prevalent and we have stronger storms. I guess that kind of idea has been kicked around with respect to cyclones, tornadoes in the U.S. states. Um, And it's very possible that there is a link between that and thunderstorms. But in this particular case, it has to be like all the right conditions converge because first that thunderstorm has to happen right when you're near that pollen peak. So it just so happens that all of um, southern Australia had a very, very wet spring last year. And it was just completely green. They say it was so green that the farmers and the pastures couldn't even bale up the amount of green grass, that rye grass that was greening up. They couldn't even get it, you know, baled up in time because it was so much of it. So having that big storm happening right at the time that you had this very unusual wet spring, I think that kind of created all the bad situations. But it is kind of worrisome because they say that 30% of the people affected by this thunderstorm asthma event never reported any problems with hay fever or asthma in the past. Right. So this, there's a lot of people trying to understand what happened last November. 
this symposium that happened over the course of last week, looking at thunderstorm asthma and what eventuated from this event in November, what were the main discussions in terms of remedying this problem or, or being able to be more equipped if these sorts of events would be more frequent in the future? Yeah, the primary concern, I guess, would be let's take the expectation that this may happen again and now get the right infrastructure such that you don't become short in supply of medicine, medication, because all of this ran out. All of the chemists were also flooded with people, and they they just couldn't distribute anything more because they weren't prepared for such an event. Of course, ambulances services could not meet, keep up with demand. And sort of like the state of Victoria is thinking that their first focus has to be how to prepare their infrastructure needs to handle an emergency. And it doesn't have to be this type of emergency, but maybe any kind of emergency that might develop that would require so much public health intensive action like that. From the science point of view, that's going to be very slow because the problem is if thunderstorm asthma only occurs infrequently, it's still considered a rare event. Like I said, there's only been 10 reported in Australia. I think there was a big one in 1997 in Wagga Wagga. And Melbourne had the most number. They've had like five or six in the last 20, 30 years. So it's infrequent, which means it's very hard to develop any kind of predictive models. And it involves not only a predictive model that involves meteorology, which may be hard to pinpoint to, to an exact day, you know, but the science means even trying to figure out, is it really the ruptured pollen that caused the problem? Is it because the pollen mixed with ozone or some PM10 or some other kind of pollutant or contaminant in the air? We don't know that. So all we could do is hope from the health point of view that there'd be more attention placed trying to diagnose and figure out exactly what happened with this event, which you need before you can try to do something about the next event that will happen. Alfredo Huete, Distinguished Professor from the Climate Change Cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney. And there's a follow-up story on how much pollen and asthma-related harms are costing Australia. Also with Alfredo, which you can catch up with on our sister program, Think Health. Just go to 2SER.com forward slash Think Health or subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And to give you an indication of how big of an issue pollen can be, it's costing Australia in the billions. In Australia, the average person consumes around 25 kilograms of seafood each year. Times that by our national population and that figure reaches 500,000 tonnes annually. Sourcing seafood will need to adopt a more sustainable practice as we move forward. And as we've seen in some global situations, overfishing can result in the destruction of habitats and important marine ecosystems. One such alternative, and an industry worth $226 million in New South Wales alone, is aquaculture. Kate Barclay is an associate professor from the University of Technology in Sydney, and she recently visited a number of aquaculture farms along New South Wales' south coast, north coast and mid-north coast to observe the feasibility of a nationwide approach to aquaculture. Aquaculture is when you raise animals for seafood rather than catching ones from the wild. 
What species would you normally farm in aquaculture? In New South Wales, most aquaculture has been oysters, but there's also, since the 1980s, been quite a lot of prawn farms and some fish farms, shellfish and some other kinds of fish in sea cages as well. Like what? Yellowtail kingfish. That's it. It's yellowtail kingfish up near Port Stephens. There's a new venture going on. And how new is that? Yellowtail kingfish aquaculture in Australia has been going on for at least 10 years in South Australia, but that's brand new for New South Wales. And what coastal uh, regions are we talking about in New South Wales? There's aquaculture in a lot of places, but our study focused on three areas where there's more, and that was the north coast area, the mid-north coast area, and the south coast. Tell me about these areas. Paint me a picture of the landscape. What's it like? They vary a bit, sort of subtropical up north. Some of the areas where people do aquaculture are really quite far away from the public and they're far away from main roads. They're in quite remote areas. Is that to avoid pollution? It's probably where they can get the land that's suitable. They need to put in place careful systems for filtering all their water in and all their water out. They have to be very careful of their pollution anyway, those land-based farms, but it's probably about where they can get land that's suitable to use and affordable. Is it a sustainable practice? Yeah, the New South Wales aquaculture, because it's so carefully regulated. So there's no concern for over-farming? It's usually pollution that you're concerned about with fish farming or whether aquaculture species or variants of of species that are being used for aquaculture, whether those get into the wild stocks and what they do in the environment outside the farm. What are some of the positive outcomes for farming seafood locally? One of the big ones is for tourism and the provision of fresh local seafood. So many visitors that go to the coast want to eat some food from there, be it cheese, wine, fruit and vegetables, but also seafood. And being able to have oysters from the local area or whatever other aquaculture products is a really important thing for tourism. Is some of that seafood exported as well around Australia or even in the cities? A lot of the production is sent to Sydney Fish Market or to other outlets in Sydney. Some producers don't sell in the local market. Their market chains are through Sydney rather than the local market. But a lot of oyster farms, people may be aware of when they visit at the coast, they can go to the farm and often buy a dozen or a couple of dozen at the farm. Where else in Australia do we have an aquaculture industry? There's a big farm salmon aquaculture industry in Tasmania and South Australia has quite a lot of aquaculture as well. They have a ranching thing where they don't raise the fish from babies. They catch juvenile fish and fatten them up for a while. That's southern bluefin tuna that people may have heard of around Port Lincoln. There's also lots of oyster aquaculture in South Australia and they have the yellowtail kingfish. I remember reading something earlier on in the year about, because Tasmania also, they do oysters as well, don't they? Yes. There was a potential for a disease outbreak. Um, How do diseases like this in farming practices affect the industry? Well, they're very devastating. And some parts of the New South Wales oyster industry, especially around the Hawkesbury and other areas, have suffered a lot from a few different diseases. This one called QX, which means the disease originally came from Queensland, but there's not much known other than that, so that's why it's called QX. And there's POMS, which stands for Oyster Mortality Syndrome. What happens to jobs and stuff when if well, an outbreak happens? Well, the, jo- the jobs would disappear. There was a case at Wallace Lake a long time ago 
where they had hepatitis, a hepatitis disease that was not affecting the oyster so much, but people who ate it. And that just devastated both the tourism industry and the oysters there for a while. And then that whole area rallied to improve water quality in the area so that that kind of pollution wouldn't happen again. And where do you see the future for aquaculture in Australia? I think with food production in Australia, it it being an important industry for Australia and it seeming to be something we have a competitive sort of advantage in for the region, it's important for us to pursue any avenues that are are available. There's some really interesting stuff going on with multi-species aquaculture overseas, some of which is being tried in Australia, but it's more developed in, in other countries overseas. What is multi-species aquaculture? Sometimes it's shellfish like oysters and mussels and, yep. and seaweeds together, say, on strings or ropes hanging in the water. There's some stuff going on the south coast where it's algae and I think prawns and the species work together in eating each other's waste products and things like that. So they're often much more environmentally friendly than single species aquaculture. And what role would algae play in, say, that particular venture mostly that is going to the cosmetics or pharmaceutical industry at the moment but algae can have very high levels of omega-3 and can be a really good part of human diets as well. Kate Barkley, Associate Professor from the University of Technology, Sydney. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER Radio. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Colin Sustainability. You can also find us on iTunes. For more info, you can also head to our website, toser.com forward slash Think Sustainability. I'm Leah Summerglue. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week. Listener.